2 Samuel chapter 14. And um, let's see. I think I'm going to start with verse 14. And then I'll read it and then I'll give a background to it and we'll go from there. 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning with verse 14. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the king in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Let's go back up, if we will, to verse 14. And kind of marinate in that for a second. <clears throat> and I want you to internalize it. For we will surely die. We all have that in common, yes? For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. He devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. What happened in the Garden of Eden? We, we disobeyed God. He gave us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying, do not eat of this tree, for eating of it, dying, you will surely die. It's, it's, it's current and progressive. And so he banished us from the Garden of Eden where the tree of life was because we'd be sealed in our perdition, which would be eternal damnation, and he gave us what is known as time. For time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. And we're on this earth for a season of time to be reconciled to God. And the reconciliation comes for the penalty being paid for the sin committed. And a lot of us are saying, well, Eve did it, and so did Adam. Adam, I didn't. Well, the reality is, even to our own devices, we won't walk a life of purity. We still sin. Sin just means missing the mark. There's nobody perfect. We have a conscience. We know what good and evil is. Even the rules we make for ourselves, we break. Is there anyone in the room who has always obeyed the speed limit? Raise your hand. Always obeyed the speed limit? Tonight? Tonight? I, I bet you I could say that and we'd be all right. Is there anyone who's kept every New Year's resolution you've ever made? Is there anyone who's ever said, I swear to God I'll never do that again? And you did it again. Raise your hand. Now those are hands we should be seeing. I swear to God I'll never do that again. And did we do it again? Let's try it again. Hands up. And the rest of you are lying. What does that do? That banishes us from a holy God. We're separated from God for all eternity. How are we reconciled? We're going to cover that on Easter Sunday. I'm going to take a look at the three crosses. But, but tonight... I love this passage, and it says, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Life is short. We're going to die. But God wants us to understand, yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. He gives us means. 
And we have that opportunity to respond to him. Salvation is for all mankind. The, the death on the cross was sufficient for, for all the world's sins, but only efficient for those who would receive it. It's a gift. God gave us a choice. We have the responsibility to respond to that choice. Now, there's some saying that we don't respond. God is the one who initiates. God's the one who does it all. Um, it's the reform mindset. I struggle with that. I really do. For God so loved the world that he gave. I, I, don't, I don't believe that, that there's limited atonement, that Jesus' death on the cross were only for the ones that he selected. I think he gets tomorrow's paper today and he has full knowledge and he's completely sovereign and yet man has a choice. How to reconcile that? I can't. Any more than I can reconcile the Trinity. How God can speak to himself and answer himself and be in three places at once. I have no idea. I can't even fathom the virgin birth. But I do know this, he's God. And if I could explain it, he'd only be as big as my brain and we'd all be in trouble. Right? So there are mysteries of the Godhead. There's mysteries about you know, the, the sovereignty of God. And yet, when we come to this passage that God devises means, and this is the woman of Tekoa. We don't know her name other than she's the woman of Tekoa. And when we get to heaven, we'll get a chance to know her name. Right now, she's the woman of Tekoa. But she has a very profound impact in David's life. We're going to read uh, more of chapter 14 in just a moment, but let me put it into context. Uh, we've, we've skipped over in David's life portions that I've already covered in previous studies, not necessarily in this study of the life of David, but I've covered David and Bathsheba. I've covered Nathan confronting David uh, for the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. We know what happened with Bathsheba. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He lusted for her, and then he, he called for her, and then she became pregnant, and then he summoned Uriah off of the battlefield, which was Bathsheba's wife, uh, husband, and he, he said, go and sleep with your wife, and he knew the story. He knew what was going on. There's whispers in the palace. He wasn't going to give David the benefit of the doubt, and so he let everyone know he slept out on the doorstep of his home. He didn't have relations with his wife. He went back to the front line. David was covering his sins, and so he put a hit on Uriah. He told the forces, listen, I want you to, to move in and then I want you to pull back and keep Uriah on the front lines. And it was a hit and, they all, and he, he died. David murdered uh, Uriah. He murdered him. We also know the story of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Um, Eliam was, was uh, Ahithophel's son. Eliam was one of David's mighty men. Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. We saw that Ahithophel struggled. We'll cover that maybe in time. I've done that a few times about unforgiveness. So we see this whole aspect. So David commits adultery and he commits murder. Now let's remember two things about adultery and murder in, in, the, in the Hebrew world. It was what's considered a capital punishment, punishable by death. David deserved death. And, and yet God gave him mercy. David understood. He was still a man after God's own heart. He was a murderer and a liar. He was an adulterer. And yet God had mercy on him because he pleaded for mercy. He, and, 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 and God gave him mercy. And this is the idea of grace. First of all, mercy is not getting what we deserve. David should have died. What is grace? Getting what we don't deserve. He got to keep Bathsheba. Oh, everyone's going, well, that's unfair. Well, I got news for you. Everyone in this room that's wearing clothes and has had a full meal doesn't deserve it. If we got what we deserved, if we want justice... Be careful. We've sinned against the holy God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand and there's no sin and no shadow in his turning. And not only does he not give us judgment and death, 
but he gives us grace, which means we have this abundance as we sit in this room that nicely air-conditioned, comfortable seats. We have a Bible that's open, and we have the opportunity to fellowship with one another, raise families. This is, this is mercy and grace combined. So David goes through this whole series where he commits adultery, murder, and he lies. Two offenses are punishable by death. And this is what happens. God gives him mercy for his sins, but doesn't relieve him of the consequences of those sins. And those consequences now are coming home to roost. David has sown the wind and he's reaping the whirlwind. And so we're going to see two stories prior to what we're studying tonight. The first one is found in chapter 13. And, And in chapter 13... There's a young man by the name of Amnon. And Amnon has a half-sister by the name of Tamar. Tamar has the same father as Amnon, but different mothers. Tamar actually has the same mother and father that Absalom has, but Amnon has a different mother and the same father. David is the father of, of all three of them. So Absalom is Tamar's full brother. Amnon is Tamar's half-brother. Now Amnon has a problem. Amnon has a, a, a love, now I use that word poorly, a, a, a deep attraction to his half-sister. I love the Bible because it is so screwed up and if there's anyone in the room who's had issues, you're found here. Amen? And some of you go, well, I, I'm not that bad. Well, give us some time. I'm sure if we dug a little bit, we'd find some serious dirt. And so he has, he has a, a, a lust for his half-sister. So much so that it's destroying him. He's not eating. He's losing weight. Um, just he's, he's withering away. David's concerned for the health of his son Amnon. Well, as this continues on, um, there's a problem and uh, Amnon loves Tamar. He's drawn to her. And, and Amnon has a quote-unquote friend. And I use that term loosely because with friends like this, you don't need enemies. And there's a lot of young people in the room that have friends like this, and you need to get rid of them. You think you're, they're your friends, but their counsel is not godly. And the guy's name is uh, Jonah, um, Jonadab. And Jonadab is actually the son of a very dear friend of David's. And Jonadab is the friend of Amnon. And Jonadab comes to Amnon and he goes, hey, why are you so skinny and so distraught? You don't sleep? You're... He goes, I, I, can I confide you in something? He says, yeah. He says, I am attracted and drawn to my half-sister. Jonadab doesn't say like, that's sick. What's your problem? Instead he goes, hey, you're the prince. You're the son of the king. It's good to be the king. You can have anything you want. If you want Tamar, take her. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Bad group to hang out with. And Jonadab says, take her. And Amnon doesn't know how to do it. So Jonadab gives him a plan. He says, tell her to bring you some sustenance. Tell your dad you're famished and that if you could only be fed by Tamar, uh, you'd be happy and she could bring you some cakes and, and some sustenance and some strong food and then you'd have an appetite and you'd eat and he'll, he'll permit that. And so sure enough, David permits it. Tamar goes in there and uh, Amnon rapes her. This is scripture. Amnon rapes her. 
And, and, and she's, she's begging and pleading with him, don't do this awful thing, and, and disgraces her. And, and when he's finished, he just says, get out. And kicks her out. And David, for two years, doesn't do anything about it. You know why? Because he's paralyzed by his own sin. You know one of the reasons why we're not more firm on our positions as Christians as we're being attacked across the country? Because we have compromise in our life. You want to know the main reason why I struggled with running for office? I didn't want all my past to come up. And they were digging through it too. We had to pull all the sermons offline. I mean, they were pulling stuff out of there. They weren't listening to sermons to, to, to be touched or to be ministered to. They were listening to it to find any dirt they could on me. Because I'm candid from the pulpit. And yet in this, this time in David's life, he knows that God's forgiven. He's given him mercy. He's actually given him grace. But David is paralyzed by sin. How can I confront Amnon for what he's done when in reality I took Bathsheba from another man. He's paralyzed by it. It's amazing how quiet people get when they're guilty of the same sin. And so David's paralyzed for two years. That infuriates Absalom. Absalom's sister, full sister, has been raped and his father's doing nothing about it. Absalom is so furious that he gets a group of his guys together and they murder Amnon. Murder him. David, angry, casts Absalom out of the kingdom and, and Absalom runs off to his mother-in-law's house, hides in Gershom. And while he's hiding there, for three years, David doesn't even talk to him. He's been banished. Banished from the kingdom. And you know why David won't talk to him? Because David too is guilty of murder. He's paralyzed. It's hindered his ability to be a parent. I want to talk to parents tonight. No, I want to talk to sinful parents. I guess that includes anyone who has children. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I wish I knew at 15 what I know at 50, I wouldn't have done the things I did. But I'm 50 and I did at 15 what I shouldn't have done. And now I have a 15-year-old. Am I paralyzed to speak into that child's life because I'm guilty of the things I want him to avoid? The enemy would want us to think that. But God has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He's made you a new creature in Christ. He's given you the parenting ability to do for your children what wasn't done for you. Or the lessons that you learned, and maybe you're an experiential learner, now you're able to say from experience, you don't want to go that path. I would say don't let your past paralyze you of being a parent in the present. Wow, that sounded good. Don't let your past paralyze you from being a parent in the present. Be firm with your kids. Love them. Give them boundaries. And they're going to push because they want to know if they're real. They want to know if your house is legitimate. The, the permissive parents... Are, are the ones that were maybe overly ruled in their home. And, and you didn't like the discipline factor. You don't discipline in anger. You don't discipline your children in anger. 
And the other thing is too, you want to talk about permissive. The old Danish proverb is if you give to a pig when it oinks or a child when it cries, you'll end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. You know, one of the best things you can say to your kids is no. Let them see the consequences of their actions. Discipline them. You know what you're doing if you don't? You're kicking the can down the road. I got a call this week. It's personal. Has to do with my own family. And the person had called and shared with me information that they had, and I said, you need to act on that. And they said, no, we just don't feel compelled to do it. And my response to them was, you're kicking the can down the road for someone else to have to deal with it. God put it in front of you. Deal with it. It isn't pleasant. And the Bible says if you, if you spare the rod, you hate the child. Disciplining is hard. Nobody wants to be disturbed when they're sitting on their barca lounger watching TV. I've had a rough day. I don't need this. Shut up, kids. Don't make me, don't make me get up. And they're, they're going to they're gonna do whatever they can to see if you're going to get up. Are your rules legitimate? And my favorite is when you start to count. One, two. You know why you're doing that? You're lazy. You don't want to get up. You don't count. I told you you don't do that. And, and if they do, you get up and you go discipline them. And, and, and God will give you wisdom on how to apply that. But if you're sitting back, you're telling the kids, this TV program is more important than me getting off my butt and tending to the, the children that have been trusted as stewards. I'm a steward of their life entrusted by God. I have to give an accounting for these children's lives. They've been entrusted to me. God's not up there going, one, <laughs> two. There's consequences. You do this, this will happen. They do it. You better follow up. If you keep, well, next time. Kick the can down the road. Make it somebody else's problem. And here David is paralyzed and he doesn't want to act on it. And there's a number of things that probably paralyzes his parents, especially if you have a sinful past. But you have to remember that you've been, you've been forgiven and God's equipped you to be for your kids what maybe your parents weren't for you. And so David is now left with this mess. And his son is banished. His family is in disarray. His other son's murdered. He never did any disciplinary action for the murder of that other than banishing Absalom. But he can't do any discipline because he's guilty of murder himself. He never disciplined uh, Amnon because he was guilty of adultery and he he committed rape. His whole family is screwed up because sin has paralyzed him. And so what, is, what happens is Joab is one of David's mighty men and he loves David. And he's tired of seeing David paralyzed. He's tired of seeing the dysfunction in the palace. He's burdened by it. And this is what, this is what happens in chapter 14. In verse one, it says, Joab, burdened by all this, Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. He saw David burdened by it. He, he, he saw David lamenting over it and doing nothing about it. So Joab sent it to Koah and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. 
So Joab put the words in her mouth. Basically, he gave her a script. Follow this. David loves stories. I saw what Nathan did. He told him a story about a lamb, and hey, David got suckered. He is a story sucker. And you tell him this story, and it has that moral ending, and it's just going to hit him right between the eyes. David is visual this way. He's, a, he's an artist. He loves stories. He writes songs. He's a sweet psalmist of Israel. Trust me, this will work. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. David is always looking out for the, for the underdog. And he sees this woman and she's on her face and she says, help, O king. David's heart breaks. One of the reasons why uh, Brett tries to avoid me doing counseling is because I am the biggest sucker on the planet. Someone comes in, gives me a sob story. I'm like reaching in my wallet. I'm, I'm, I'm grabbing, you know, I'm, I, I, my wife comes home, where's the car? I gave it away. You know, I, why? You know, and, and Brett's, Rob, we'll take this. Okay, okay. If, you, if you're looking for a sucker, I'm here. I have been played like a fiddle. People have taken advantage of, of our family. They've, I mean, endless. And, and, and so here, David is like that. That's probably the only thing I have in common with David. None of his traits more. Okay, I'm sorry. Where were we? So the king said to her, what troubles you? How can I help you? Empathetic. And she answered, indeed, I am a widow. Oh, David's like, widow. I'm in. Anything up to half my kingdom. I'm a go. He, she knows the words. Joab knows. It's like Brett telling a woman to tell a story to me. He knows all my weaknesses, laying out the script, widow, oh, okay, my husband is dead, oh, dead, man, now your maidservant has two sons, two sons, she's raising by herself in this culture, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but one struck the other and killed him, boys will be boys, and this, it just got out of hand, and the kid's dead, this is tragic. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. They said, deliver him who struck his brother that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed and we will destroy the heir also so that they would extinguish <laughs> my ember that is left and, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. My whole family will be wiped out. We'll have no male heirs. Everybody wants justice and they want to kill my remaining son because he murdered my other son. And the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house. And the king and his throne be guiltless. Blame me. And he just loves a broken and contrite heart. He even wrote about it, even sang about it. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. And she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And Joab's probably listening through the tent going, he's just hook, line, and sinker. He's got data. (laughs) Okay. And then David's hooked. And the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, say on, woman. Please, I, I'm, I'm listening. I am, I'm enraptured. I, I'm moved. I'm empathetic. I'm sympathetic. I, up to half my kingdom. And the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. David's like, oh, 
Brett! <laughs> Joab! Nathan! I'm surrounded by people who sucker me. For we will, and then she, oh, this, this sermon. She gives him a sermon that rocks his, his world. We will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones may not, are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the king in discerning good and evil. May the Lord, your God be with you. The king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. I want to get to the bottom of this. You ready? Yes, yes, yes. Please let my Lord, the king speak. So the king said, is this the hand of Joab? Did he put you up to this? And the woman answered and said, as you live, my Lord, my Lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or the left from anything that my Lord, the king has spoken. Your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in my mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, all right, I've granted this thing. Go therefore and bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king. And the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. He didn't quite do it completely, which is going to cause him problems down the road. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now, I remember one time I'm not blaming Brett on this one. I'm blaming sweet, sweet, lovely Pastor Marty. His fault. My mother dissed me. She made me so angry. She insulted my wife. You don't do that. You insult my wife, you're picking up your teeth with your broken arm. She insulted my family. She humiliated me in front of my own family. And I looked at her and I said, you've pushed the wrong button, woman. It's over. I said, I'm going to get in that car and we're not talking anymore. My dad was in the throes of Alzheimer's. He was still cognizant of, of tension in the home. And my dad's a peacemaker, sweetest man you could imagine. And I got in that car and my dad came out and he couldn't articulate the words because his mind was gone. But he knew that this was wrong. And he's standing in the driveway as I'm getting in the car and I'm telling Michelle to get in and the kids to get in and I'm driving away and if I never see you again, good riddance. And I drove home angry and justified. And my dad was the last vision I saw in the driveway with this broken heart. And I got back here and I confided in men I trust I shared my heart. And I shared with Marty, my, my mom did this and this, and she's just awful. And he didn't say anything. He just listened and walked out. And days went into weeks, weeks went into months. 
Marty would come in and say, you know, I think it's enough. I think you need to reconcile with your mom. Oh, don't even go there. I didn't tell you so that you can come in here and tell me. And he kept trying to do that. And finally, I just dissed him. And one day he came in and he said, Rom, I want to tell you a story. Ooh, shiny. What is the story? I like stories. Ooh, what is the story? Ooh, stories are good. Stories are... He's just dangling this and he knows how to work it. He said, Rob, you know I was divorced? Yeah. And you know Randy, my son? Yeah. And you know that I'm at the church because Randy brought me? Yeah. He says, you know that my son and I didn't talk for years? No, no. I didn't know that. No. Yeah, we didn't talk for years. And it was Randy who invited me to come to this church, and I'm serving you now. Oh, Marty, I couldn't do this ministry without you. I'm so thankful to Randy. Well, you know what? We were, we were at odds because we had both been deeply hurt by each other. Oh, oh, oh. And he said, and I reached out to him, and he reached out to me, and we reconciled. And you know what I regret the most at my age? I'm like, what? All the years I've lost. And, 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 and I miss so many key areas of my son's life because I, 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 I was angry at his mother and I was angry that they sided with her and all these other things. I go, Marty, that's, I'm so glad you guys reconciled. Yeah. You need to do this with your mother. Rob, she's not getting any younger, and you're going to... We'll surely die and become like spilled water on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Rob, life is going to come to an end, and you don't want any regrets. You want to connect with her. Trust me. And I said, Marty, I don't even know. I don't even know how to do that. He goes, you're a funny man. Oh, playing me again, aren't you? He says, tell her a joke. I don't, I don't have any jokes I could tell that woman. He says, well, pray about it. All right. Pray about it. And he leaves. Five minutes later, he comes in with a stack of jokes from the printer. <laughs> I put the funniest ones on the top and they get dumber all the way down. And I got to the first joke and I said, she, she would laugh at that. And I picked up the phone and I dialed it. My mother answered, hello. Hi, mom, it's Rob. Oh, why are you calling? Duh. Marty goes, tell her a joke, tell her a joke. I, I, I'm calling because I wanted to tell you a joke. What is it? I said, well, and I remember the joke because my dad's in the throes of Alzheimer's and the joke was a man had a memory problem and he went to his best friend and his best friend said, how's your memory problem going? He says, you know what? I've been cured of it. He says, really? He says, yeah, I went to a seminar and, and, and I was cured of my memory problem. He says, well, what, what, what was the name of the seminar? He goes, um, What's the name of the flower with the long stem and it's red and it's got thorns? He goes, a rose? He goes, yes, thank you. Hey, Rose, what was the name of the seminar I went to? 
She thought it was funnier. And my mom began to laugh hysterically. And from that moment on, it was reconciled. And six months later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And 11 months later, she was dead. And he got me hook, line, and sinker. For we will surely die and become like spilt water on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. What is hindering you from reconciling? What's the awful thing that someone's done that you can't reconcile? Joab had such a love for David that he wanted to see the banished ones brought back. He wanted to make sure that they weren't expelled from the presence of the king. I look at all of us. We're all banished in our sin from the presence of the king. And yet, he has devised a means. Yes? Every one of you has a testimony of how you came to Christ. Some of you haven't come to Christ, but I tell you what, God has devised a means to bring you there. I remember being in junior high in the eighth grade and a kid came up to me and said, you're going to go to hell if you don't know Jesus Christ. First time I'd ever heard the word Jesus Christ in a context other than confusion. What? Yeah. And he tried to share the gospel as an eighth grader can, which is limited. Although our eighth graders could probably light it up. And then I, well, I was sympathetic to that. I'd always, I'd lay a, wait, God, I don't want to die. I'd say a prayer. I didn't even know what I was praying. I, I don't want to go to hell. And I would ponder this in my mind. And then I remember there was an English teacher who said, I, I do a Bible study and you're welcome to come. And I'd heard about this Bible study. He did it at his home. And, and I thought, the cutest girls in the school go to this Bible study. God will devise a means. He knows the I shiny things. <laughs> He'll devise a means to bring the banished back from exile. And I went to go meet cute girls. I met a bloodied, risen savior. I mean, everyone, I, I had lunch this week with, a, um, actually last week, with a, a Jewish brother, a Messianic believer. He was raised as an Orthodox Jew in, in New York. His brother got saved on the streets. His brother was bipolar, had issues. He got saved on the streets and he came home to tell his, his Jewish Orthodox parents that he had gotten Jesus Christ as his Savior, his Messiah. His parents flipped out, disowned him, and he moved out of the house. But before he left, he hid New Testaments everywhere in the house. His younger brother found one, and one night underneath the bed, he's got his flashlight, he's reading it. He imagine his mother going, what are you reading under the covers, you know? Most parents would be like, ooh, he's a, my Bible, you know, that would be a good thing. Anyways. And it was probably to, to the family, they were thinking, that's worse than anything else you could be reading under the covers, if you know what I'm saying. He was so scared of what his parents, and he's reading this, and he has a conversion in his bed by himself. Talk about a Pauline experience. And, and he's trying to follow up, and for years he just knows, and, he, and he's sent on a, on a trip back to Israel, and he's working on a kibbutz, and he's telling everyone about the Savior, who he doesn't even know much about because he's never gone to a Bible study or a church. When he finishes his time there, he comes back to the United States and he's trying to figure out what to do and he hears about a Bible study somewhere in New York City. He gets lost and there's the place where the address is, it's a vacant lot. And there's nothing there. And he's with his girlfriend that was from an Orthodox family and the family wanted her to break up with him and he wanted to marry her, but they were so concerned about this Jesus freak guy that they wanted it to be over. But she goes with him on this Bible study and they're looking at an empty lot going, and so this guy comes by and he hails him and he says, do you know this address? And the guy says, it's this lot here, there's nothing there. And he says, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for, a, uh, I think a Bible study. 
He goes, I'm a minister to the Messianic community. Why don't you come? We're having something at my house. And for five years, he educates him, and he just comes to this understanding of the Lord as one of the most powerful testimonies. I was thinking about this young Hindu kid by the name of Payush. P-I-Y-U-S-H. Orthodox Hindu family, just totally... And there he is in high school and a kid comes up to him and shares the gospel and he receives Christ in high school and goes on to be baptized his first year in college without his parents' knowledge. Goes on to become a Rhodes Scholar, one of the most intelligent folks, and he's the youngest governor in in the United States. That's Bobby Jindal. There's a man by the name of David Garrison who wrote a book called A Wind in the House of Islam. He says two to seven million Muslims have come to Christ in the last two decades, most by dreams. He devises means. He devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. Read a story about Thomas Malcolm Muggeridge. He was so convinced that communism was the way that he he moved to, to, to communist Russia. He was born in 1903, died in 1999. He moved to communist Russia and, and invested and wrote for the Pravda, everything else. And while he was there, the teachings that he had had as a young child in Sunday school came back and he started to realize that this is an experiment in insanity. And when he started to do the, the work and really commit himself and study it, he came to Christ in communist Russia. Think about Simon the Cyrenian carrying the cross for Christ. God devised a means. He was just walking along and the Roman soldier says, pick it up. He goes on to be a saint in the body of Christ later down the road. You think about the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip is, is told by the Holy Spirit to take a different route down to Joppa. Nobody goes that way. He comes down, sees the Ethiopian eunuch who's in charge of the treasuries of Egypt, reading out of Isaiah 53. And he runs up alongside. Security guards are going to kill him. Somehow he passes through all the secret service agents and, and he's running along the chariot, and the man says, do you know what this means? He says, stop, I'll tell you. He tells him, he says, what hinders me from being baptized? They baptize him right there, and all of a sudden, Philip disappears. God will devise a means. He'll devise a means that his banished ones are not expelled from him. I, I love the, the story of um, Charles Spurgeon's friend. His name was Pastor Thorpe. You've heard the story? Pastor Thorpe was in, in Oxford, England, in the university there. And um, they had a club that they would make fun of all the preachers. And the whole thing was they would listen to these revivalists like Whitfield, and they would go and listen to them, and then they would learn all their mannerisms and their blinks and their twitches and the way that, you know, and they would, they would get them down to a T, and then they'd come back and they'd mimic, mimic them. And it was Thorpe's turn to mimic the sermon of Whitfield, and he got in front of his club, and he began to teach on the passage, unless you repent, you shall also perish. And he's playing Whitfield, and he's doing the whole thing, and he gets to the passage, and the Holy Spirit just convicts him, blows him away, and right there he begins to weep and gives his heart to the Lord. He said, that was the best sermon I ever preached. I preached it, and I was a sinner, and I got saved. (laughs) God will devise a means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. You know, the other thing that I think about is maybe there's someone in the room that, I don't want to hear this Jesus crap. And that's, that's the term I get from people. I don't want to hear it. And I came because you asked me to. 
And the more you hear it, the more it starts to move you and, and affect you. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. And, and I think about my, my, my mother-in-law. You know, they'll be led by a little child. The, the very first time she came face to face with Jesus was Molly saying, Gammy, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to go to hell, just like I got in the eighth grade. And I don't want you to go to hell. I, I would have been beaten up had I said that to the woman. Michelle would have been disowned. This sweet little Molly with her high voice and just her cross eyes and her thick glasses. And she just was so cute when she, she had that strabismus and ah, you just wanted to squeeze her. She was so lovely. And she just said it and was so innocent that, that Dee's heart melted. And she's a believer today. So is Tom, my father-in-law. God will devise a means. Sickness. You know, we, we despise the idea of hearing the word cancer, but for many people, it's brought folks to the Lord. Broken marriages and desperation. I know stories Brett shared with me about counseling appointments, and I've had my own where marriages are in disarray, and we, we start by sharing the gospel and laying a foundation and watching the spouse come to the Lord, and it's almost like, well, that's on autopilot, and you just back away, and you just watch this thing healed. You know, preaching. Simply by hearing things, you know. The, you know, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler magazine, he was led to the Lord by Ruth Carter Stapleton, which was Jimmy Carter's sister. Now, he's renounced God and he's walked away, but interestingly enough, in the course of that, his daughter, uh, Tanya Flynn Vega, became a believer. And she's so anti-porn and stands in opposition to her father, their father's disowned her. And she lives for the Lord today. God will devise a means that the banished would no longer be in exile. You guys know Roe v. Wade, 1973? Two Texas attorneys found a sucker and, and they found a pawn. It was a young woman who was pregnant and the state wouldn't permit her to have an abortion and convince her that she'd get money out of the, the lawsuit and, and she went forward with it and she was Roe versus Wade and she was Jane Doe or Jane Roe. And, and you know what's interesting that they never tell about that story? 1973, the Supreme Court outlawed basically any anti-abortion laws at the state level. The, the state rights were removed. Convictions of, of citizens of states were overridden by the federal government through judicial tyranny, I believe. And you know what you don't hear? Is the woman that was in that case chose not to have an abortion and gave the baby up for adoption. And what you don't hear is her name is Norma McCovey and she came to Christ and she, she stands in opposition to Roe v. Wade. Roe no more is her ministry. God will devise a means. He'll always devise a means. You look at all these different folks, and I, I want to close because we're limited in time tonight. When the woman gave, this wise woman gave this story from Joab to David, David was so moved that he almost did what God does. He brought Absalom back, but he never engaged him. You gotta talk. You, you have, you've got to connect. You gotta work through these differences. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Pride is what separates you. 
Now, there's, there's obviously going to be issues of hurt that you're going to have to work through and trust issues, but pursue them as God's pursued you. He's a hound from heaven who's never given up on you. He's going to devise a means. He doesn't want his banished ones expelled from him or exiled from him any longer. He's come that you might be saved. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He's given a means for every person to be saved. There's a way out. It would have been good for Absalom to say, Dad, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That would have really helped. It would have been good for, for David to confront Absalom and say, you know, I'm, I'm hurt by you. I, I, I want to be reconciled to you, but you have never owned this. And I'm confronting you as a father confronts a son. Work it out. Quit putting your head in the sand and pretending it's going to go away. Because you don't like conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Let me say that again. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is a presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. He's the prince of peace. Sometimes good and evil have to conflict and you have to deal with it. And you've got to work through it and you've got to call it what it is. And repent of it. And apologize for it. And then God resolves it. And this woman spoke to David. David's heart was touched. He didn't follow through all the way like God does with us. But I, and and he, he, he sowed the wind. He reaped the whirlwind because Absalom would rebel in the kingdom. But real quick, with the remaining time, this is a cool one. This is a woman by the name of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And um, she was a leftist lesbian professor. She despised Christians, despised them. She was a professor. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than deepen it. True. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track of becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. Fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand in the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultures, for, cultural forces buttress the Christian right. Pat Robertson's quip from the 92 Republican National Convention pushed me over the edge. Feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands and kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Indeed, the the surround sound of Christian dogma commingled with Republican politics demanding my attention. After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy. Meaningful and full, my partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, or Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. Even if you believe the ghost stories promulgated by Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The GLBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. 
While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics and patriarchy. In the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers, it was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. God devises a means. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of question I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with a worldview uh, divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialistic worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I love were going to hell was clear as a blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. And so when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. God devises a means. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way of, uh, I read the way of a glutton as a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My transgender friend, Jay, cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I love suffering in hell vomited into my conscience and gripped me to its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost and did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God promises But God's promises rolled in like sets of wave into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know 
concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience, and I wanted God to show me on my terms. My homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience, and I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of day, and when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian, or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day I came to Jesus. God devises a way, a means. Open-handed and naked in this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church had been praying for me for years, and they were there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my world right. I drank tentatively at first and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit and I rested in private peace and then community and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. I have not forgotten the blood of Jesus' surrender for this life and my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. Because God devises a means that the banished ones may come back from exile. And I'm open to being used. Amen? Look at that. 8.30. Boom! Lord, thank you for this evening and thank you for the grace and the mercy of this fellowship. Lord, thank you for the encouragement. I just sense the presence of you, Holy Spirit. And I just thank you for your word. The wise woman of Tekoa echoing in the halls of heaven and speaking to our hearts tonight. We rejoice and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.